doing today? <laughs> it's so good to see you. I was um, standing about right over there doing a portion of worship this morning and was so overcome. We were singing this song, uh, The Sound of Melodies, and I was so struck by how amazing it is what Jesus has done for each of us. Wouldn't you agree? How the Lord has redeemed us and rescued us and saved us. And as I was watching you, you know, in the mosh pit up here with your hands up and jumping and all this stuff, I I was so overcome by the sense of how pleased God is with you and, um, and how much he loves you. You know, how you are sons, how you are daughters, how you belong to him. And it's an incredible thing. I've been with David Perkins and, you know, been part of this desperation conference thing since it began. Um, Been up here with the desperation band in years past and just have loved seeing what God is doing in the midst of this. Would you agree that this has been an incredible weekend? I mean, this is, and we're not done yet. We're not done yet. But, um, but since I'm up here to get to talk to you a little bit, I wanted to tell you just a little bit about myself and where I'm from and, and a little bit of my story before we kind of dive into the scriptures this morning. I grew up in a country called Malaysia, which is about as far as you can go. Somebody from Malaysia? Uh, there's, it's about as far, or just cheer, it's about as far as you can go on the other side of the world before you start coming back, you know, because the, the world is round. Anyway, um, so I grew up there, and when I was 10 years old, my, me and my family moved to Portland, Oregon, and uh, yeah, Oregon, yep, lived there for three years, booyah, and um, moved back to Malaysia when I was 13, finished out my high school there, and then came to the, back to the U.S. to go to college, and I went to school uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, we got some, we got some Oklahoma people. And um, in my junior year, I met this girl. Yeah. Now, she was a freshman, and um, I was a junior, and her name was Holly. And when I met Holly, her hair was, was you know, had these blonde highlights in it. She was real tan, blue eyes, and it's beautiful, you know. And, and when she saw me, uh, this is kind of what I looked like. I had these gold-rimmed glasses like this, you know. There's nothing wrong with that. And I had really short hair, so short that it made my earlobes really look big. And uh, and I had these sweaters, you know, because I came from Malaysia. It's real hot. It's hot year-round there. When people found out that I was coming back to the States to go to college, they wanted to take care of me. And so they would try to give me clothes that they thought I would need. So I had a lot of hand-me-down clothes, things that people who one time visited Europe or visited America had been in a winter somewhere in the world and thought that I needed it. So I had, like, thermal underwear and Russian woolly earmuffs and, like, scarf. You know, I had these sweaters that would have made Bill Cosby jealous. I mean, I had all this stuff, you know. So, so when I saw Holly and someone, you know, this mutual friend that introduced us, when I met her, I, I, I thought, man, she's, yeah, she's probably a cheerleader from California. Forgive the stereotype. And she, she looked at me and she thought, ah, probably some sweet, nerdy foreign guy, you know. And um, so, but somehow we ended up hanging out with each other and becoming good friends. And, and then we started dating. And I came to discover that she was really a farm girl from Iowa. And uh, yeah, Iowa. And, uh, and she came to find out that I was really a sweet, nerdy, foreign guy. And uh, somehow, through a miracle of the Lord, we got married. So I wanted to show you a picture of my wife and I. Um, this is Holly. Yeah, she's beautiful. She's not blonde anymore. Um, that lasted just the freshman year. But we've been married eight years this summer. We've got two little girls. Um, I know. 
Sophia and her, they're so cute. And we found out last week that, you know, we're, well, we know we're pregnant, but we found out last week that we're going to have a boy. So, yeah, so two girls and now a son. And, and to be honest, if I could just, you know, be honest with you, I, I'm worried just a little bit because my friends, people who know me, have always given me a hard time about this. They say, Glenn, if you ever have a son, you're in trouble because there's all kinds of guy stuff you don't know how to do, you know, like... Who's going to teach your son how to hunt or fish or, yeah, I don't know, fix his car or work on stuff? And the truth is, I rely on others to do lots of stuff. I have friends that I call all the time, like, can you come over and fix this thing in my house? And they're like, Glenn, this is not a big problem. I'm like, yeah, but it is to me, okay? It's a big deal to me. So I outsource a lot. I mean, the other day I had to get my car taken into the shop. And my good friend Aaron Stern that you'll hear from this afternoon said, Well, Glenn, what's wrong with your car? You know, he's expecting that there's some major problems. And I'm like, oh, my car's in the shop because I needed the wiper blades replaced. (laughs) And then he did to me what you just did. And and it wasn't, you know, I got over it. And... uh, But I rely on experts. I rely on people to be good at certain things so that they can help me. And the truth is, we live in a culture where we rely on a lot of experts. There are lots of people in society, lots of people in our culture that we've come to depend on for help in particular areas. And the older you get in life and the the, the more things you discover that you need to do or need to take care of, the more you look for people that can help you. Well, you need an accountant to help you do your taxes and you need someone uh, to help you look for the right house and you need someone to do this and someone to do that. And there's all kinds of people that we need for different areas in our life. But you know what started to happen is we've started to believe that there are God experts. That there are people that know how to pray in just the right way that God will listen and God actually answers their prayers. And people who know how to worship with just the right voice and the right pitch and the right songs so that God is pleased with their worship. But then there's this sense that there are those people and then there's me. There's me who, I I don't really know how to get that. When I read the Bible, I fall asleep. I try to have a prayer time and I end up daydreaming. I try to, you know, spend time with God, but I end up looking at Facebook status updates for three hours. I just, I, I can't, you know, and there's, there's some of us that feel that way and feel like, you know what, if you're, if you're a David Perkins or if you're a John Egan, if you're these kinds of guys, you know how to do that. But then there's the rest of us. And we sort of believe that there are these God experts that they've got it figured out. They know how to do it, but then there's me. And here's the trick with this, because isn't it true that there are people who are farther along in their walk with God than we are? Yeah, that's true. And isn't it true that we should learn from them? Absolutely. That's part of why we're here. But you know, the danger comes when we cross this little line. And instead of just saying, okay, here's someone that I want to learn about here from. Here's, here's someone that can teach me about prayer. Instead of just saying that, we cross this little line and say, this person is doing it. This person is praying. This person is seeking God. That's enough. It's good enough that they're doing it. I'm going to let that person pray. I'm going to let that person read his Bible or her Bible. And then I'm going to hope that they just tell me about it. And we, we, we take this extra step where instead of just believing that there are God experts, we start to rely on them as a substitute for our own relationship with God. And you know, sometimes when you come to a conference like this, it can only highlight the so-called class division in the kingdom of God. 
Because you come to an event like this and you watch people on their knees crying in worship. You watch people jumping up and down. You watch people with their hands held high. You watch people getting into it. And maybe you've, you've been st- sitting here, standing here these last couple days and you feel like you're on the outside looking in. You say, well, I, I, I wish I could feel that. I wish I could experience that. I wish I could know what they're talking about. But it seems like everybody else in the room gets it except me. And I'm on the outside looking in. You come to an event like this and it can only make you sometimes feel worse about where you are. And you walk away and say, well, you know, it's fine. It's fine. I'll just, you know, I'll go to youth group. I'll do this. I'll do that. And then they'll just tell me what to believe about God. And they'll just, you know... And there are loads of people in big church, in adult churches, there's loads of people as they go on in life who, they would never say it this way, but have the sort of thinking like, Pastor, it's your job to study the Bible. It's my job to read the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, or watch CNN. I'll stay in, uh, on top of current events and market dynamics and whatever. I'll figure out how to make money. You figure out how to live for God. And then you just tell me the five-point sermon when I come to church on Sunday. There are loads of people that fill churches all across America and all around the world that have resigned themselves to this belief that somebody else can do it. Somebody else can know God, can pray, can hear from God, can read the scriptures. I can't, but they can't. And if they would just tell me about it, that's fine. But you know what happens is then your view of God becomes this patchwork of secondhand information It's based on rumors and hearsay. And you start to believe things about God. You're not sure why you believe that about God. You're not sure if it's even true. But you've heard it for so long. So you think, well, yeah, I think that's true. And then one day you hit a crisis moment in your life. And then if you won't think this too irreverent, I'd like to call it a what the heck moment. A moment where you say, what the heck is going on? This is what I thought God was like. This is what I thought, how I thought he was going to make my life go. And it didn't work that way. My parents got a divorce. My youth pastor had a moral failure. My church had a split. Something, something, something. I thought it was going to be like this. I thought God was like this. This was my grid. This was my lens. This was my view about God. And now life does not measure up to what I thought. And maybe you know people like this because... This is the moment where so many people, so many believers, so many Christians say, okay, I'm done. I'm going to get off this bus. I'm done. Uh, Yeah, I once went to this desperation conference and everybody was on fire for God. And we're talking about doing all these great things. And I was there once, but but now uh, it's obviously not true. And prayer doesn't work and faith isn't real. And God must be a fairy tale. And the Bible's too crazy to understand. And your crisis moment, your what the heck moment has made you walk away from God. Maybe you know people like that. In fact, if you've ever had a conversation with someone who claims to be an atheist, someone who says, oh, I don't believe in God. I don't, I don't. If you ever get somewhere in the dialogue beyond a debate, chances are you'll discover some moment in their life where they had a significant what the heck experience. That really at the core of it, Most of the time, an atheist problem with God is not an intellectual one. It's a disappointment issue. It's an issue of, I thought God was like this, 
And my, my life experience turned out to be like this. Therefore, there can't be a God. But I'd like to suggest to you, desperation, that there is another option than just walking away from faith. That there is another alternative when, when, you, when, when you hit the moment in your life where things begin to, de- begin to derail and unravel. And when your view of God is too thin to sustain you when you're going through crisis. I would like to suggest that there's another option than just walking away. And the option is to wrestle with God for yourself. I think those moments are divine opportunities. There are moments when we can say, okay, I know what I've heard. I know what someone has said. I know what has been passed down to me. But I would like to make contact with God for myself. I'd like to search this out. I'd like to wrestle with them. I'd like to vent to him. I'd like to know what he's like for myself. The Bible is full of stories of men and women who went through experiences like this, who who had moments in their life where what they believed about God was challenged and it became opportunities for them to seek him for themselves. The story we're going to look at today is found in 2 Samuel 6. It's the story of King David. Now the background to this story is David's become king pretty recently and he decides to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. Now, some of you may know this from Sunday school and from flannel graph stuff. You know, this Ark is kind of this wooden box. Others of you have watched an Indiana Jones movie at one point and you know what this Ark of the Covenant thing kind of looks like. It's a giant wooden box. Well, it's not giant, but it's a big, large wooden box that's covered with gold. And it represented the presence of God. It represented God in the midst of Israel. And maybe you know a little bit about the Old Testament. You know a little bit about Israel's history. They were not allowed to make idols. They were not allowed to even make an image and call it Yahweh. They were not allowed to make something and say, this is God. All they could do was have this box that sort of was a symbol, a representation of God's presence. And a long time ago, long before David was around, when Samuel, was the prophet, was a little boy, there was this time when, when uh, they, they were being disobedient to God as a nation. And they decided, look, we're going to bring the ark out in the middle of battle and let's hope everything works out. But it didn't. And the Philistines captured it and then they got into all kinds of trouble and they decided to send the ark back and it's in this outskirts town. And finally David becomes king and he says, okay, let's bring it back. And so we pick up the story right here in 2 Samuel 6. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Baalah of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. The cherubim were these, it's this carving of, of, of two angels made out of one piece of gold. It was beautiful. Verse 3, and they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ohio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ohio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs and harps and lyres and tambourines and sistrums and cymbals. This is the kind of party that we've experienced here at Desperation. I mean, I want you to imagine this scene. This is a moment where music's playing, people are dancing. It is exciting. It's kind of a revival service 
God is coming back to Jerusalem. Verse 6, but when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. Cows got a little clumsy. And the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. And therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of the Lord. And then David was angry because of the Lord's wrath, because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. This was David's what the heck moment. This was David saying, God, I don't understand. We're trying to do a good thing. And I think any of us in here, if you were to say, hey, was it a good idea to kind of bring God back into the center of things? Yes. We would all agree, yes, it was a good thing. Then why did a day that began like revival end like a funeral? Why did a day that began with so much joy and so much happiness and so much dancing end with so much weeping and so much sadness? And so much sorrow. David begins to ask the Lord, wait a second, what happened? And he says, how can the Lord come to me? There's this parallel account of this story. The books of First and Second Chronicles often parallel the stories in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. And in, in, in the Chronicles version of the story, David says something very, very interesting. Are you ready? Good, because I'm going to tell you. 1 Chronicles 15, this is David talking and he says, listen, it was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. This may not mean too much to you right now and we'll keep unpacking this verse in just a moment, but I want to point out something that's just a little bit interesting to me. You see, when David was a young fugitive, when David was running away from King Saul, desperate for his life, you could hardly go a few pages in the story without reading this phrase, and David inquired of the Lord. Or in other words, David began to seek God. So what happened between David, the teenager, who was desperate for God, seeking God at every turn of his life, and David, the king, who was so confident... So much in cruise control that he said, oh yeah, this happened because we didn't seek God. I didn't seek God. Is there something that can happen in us? I mean, if David was in our day, maybe as a teenager he would be here with us in desperation. Seeking God. And one day David at 30 says, yeah, this disaster happened today because I, 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 we didn't. And there's something more to this story. Because when you read it, you're like, well, that seems kind of weird, you know, like they put this ark thing on a cart and there's a couple of cows and the cow slips and Uzzah reaches out his hand and gets struck down. Like, that's weird. Can you imagine, you know, like we're worshiping here, we're singing, all of a sudden the roof opens up. We got a drummer down. That's bizarre. Like, what is this? Why did this happen? And in the Chronicles account, David goes on and says, look, the issue was not really Uzzah trying to stop the ark from slipping. The issue was the ark should have never been on a cart in the first place. And as they start to remember this, they realize, wait a second, wait a second. The way that this thing, this sacred piece of furniture is supposed to be transported from point A to point B is not by a cart. It's by priests carrying it. That the way the presence of God was designed to be transported was by priests 
who are carriers, not by carts pulled by cows. So how did that, I mean, they knew that. Every story about the ark before this, they know this. That was how the priest carried it when they walked around Jericho. That's how the priest carried it when they crossed the Jordan River. They know this. What happened? And I, you know, I'm trying to imagine the scene, you know, David's having a staff meeting. So guys, agenda item number one, I want to bring the ark, you know, back into Jerusalem. Everybody says, here, here, whatever they said, you know, like, yes, we should do it. And then maybe somebody speaks up and says, you know, David, they've got this new invention. It's called the wheel. I mean, it's, it's groundbreaking, you know, back in whatever BC year it was, you know. This is groundbreaking. They've got this thing. It's called the, the Levites. Maybe they're getting old. Their backs are not what they used to be. Nobody really wants to carry this thing. Or maybe, maybe they remembered. Maybe David remembered that when the Philistines got rid of the ark so many years ago, do you know what they used to send it back to Israel? A cart. And maybe David decided to rely on secondhand information and say, well, I heard that they did it way back when and, and the Philistines did it and it worked for them and they had this cart and it worked for them and it was fine. Maybe we can do it too. Maybe it'll work for us even though we know better. And if you're sitting here and you're thinking, what is all the stuff you're talking about? Carts and cows and big boxes covered with gold? Like, I don't get it. Here's the point. God made us for contact with Him. God made us for contact with Him. That the way God wants to interact with His people was not for some cart pulled by some cows in some impersonal but efficient way. But God has always preferred for people to be carriers of His presence. When we're looking for the answer to our schools and the world and the lost, and we're looking to the way to light up the world, the answer is never going to be some more efficient modern technology, first of all. The answer at its core is you. When we're trying to figure out how God gets from here to there, the answer is not first some technology. The answer first is you. The answer at the core of this is you and I because God made us for contact with Him. You're like, well, Glenn, okay. But what's the deal with the cart thing? See, it's interesting. We can point our finger at the Levites in in that day and say, well, the Levites, they kind of screwed this up. And then, man, they should have known better. They were the ones chosen by God to be carriers of the presence. But, you know, we have our version of carts. I think a cart is anything that we use as a substitute for our relationship with God. A cart is anything that we use as a substitute for our relationship with God. So, well, what could that be? What could be a cart that we use that instead of you and I living in contact with God, instead of you and I living as carriers of His presence, what is it that we kind of use? Well, sometimes it's a person. Sometimes it's a person that you admire, that you look up to. Sometimes it's a pastor that you're happy to say, as long as he or she is seeking God... That's good enough for me, man. That just makes me feel, he's so godly. She's such a woman of God. I'm so thankful for that. And it's great. 
But to the point where they have become a substitute for your own relationship with God. Sometimes a cart can be a song, you know? You know, like this worship song. This, this one's a one-hander. This one's an arms-folded one. This one's a two-hander. So when this song happens, this is when I experience God. Sometimes a cart can be an event. Well, you know, every time I come to this event, this is where I meet God. This is the, I don't know how to experience, I don't know how to hear his voice. I don't know how to live in contact with God outside of this event. But every time I'm at this event, it's great. And events are wonderful. We wouldn't have them. We believe in them. But we have no intention of making this conference a substitute for your own relationship with Jesus. Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, Glenn, I, I, I don't relate to this at all. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I don't have carts in my life. I'm, yeah, I love the Lord and I pray fairly often. I'd say my spiritual life is strong to fairly strong, you know. I, I thought the same thing about myself. I was the kid who grew up in a Christian home. At an early age, learned to spend devotional time with the Lord. In fact, in my high school years, I homeschooled my high school years, so I had all kinds of time to spend with the Lord. And I would spend, you know, a, a lot of time every day, an hour or two hours just sitting, playing. It's where I learned to worship. It's where I learned to open the scriptures. My parents, during my high school years, began teaching at a Bible college, and so I would sneak into their classes and listen to my mom teach about the Old Testament. I love the word of God. I was even the kind of nerdy kid that when I was sick, instead of laying in bed and watching cartoons, I laid in bed and listened to sermon tapes. Kind of weird. I love the Lord. And um, I went to college, was a theology major, majored in theological historical studies, which every time I brought that up, that was a conversation ender for some reason. Well, Been on staff here now for nine years. I love the Lord. But in November of 2006, our world here at New Life fell apart. Our leader had this tragic moral failure that made headlines all around the world. And very quickly for a lot of us around here, very quickly it, it became not about some leader who messed up, but it became about our own hearts. And it became not just about the shock of a scandal, but it became about the discomfort of introspection and asking ourselves some very difficult questions. And I read this little book in late 2006, November and December of 2006, this little tiny book written by a man named Henry Nouwen. He's gone to be with the Lord now, but he used to be this Catholic professor uh, at Harvard. And uh, he tells in this story, he tells this book, in this book about how he was at the top of his game. And all of his friends were saying, well done, you're, 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 you're so respected, you're so successful. And he says, all the while, while everybody was telling me how great I was, I realized how I was dying on the inside. And he said, I was praying poorly and loving people lazily. And he began to say that what people called burnout, he said, no, that's not burnout. Burnout's just a psychological term for spiritual death. 
He said a part of his soul was dying. And he began to ask himself this question, a very simple question. Do I know Jesus more this year than I did the year before? Am I growing in my knowledge of the Son of God personally? And I remember when I read that book, I was sitting in my living, and I was sitting in my living room on New Year's Eve of 2006. We had some friends in the room and we were talking. And we talked about this question. We didn't answer it because it's not the sort of question you just, oh yeah, well, yeah, I'm pretty sure I do, yeah. But we raised this question. Do we know Jesus more this year than we did last year? And I'll tell you something. I began to realize how in my life and in my heart, I was coasting with the Lord in cruise control. That it was good enough for me to know that somebody else was praying. It was good enough to know that I was part of this church that was doing amazing things. I was part of this prayer ministry and this missions thing and this young people on fire. I was part of all of this. Doesn't that count for something? And I recognized how much that had become a cart I wonder if it's possible that in the midst of a great youth group, a great church, a great prayer meeting, a great all of that, that something inside you is dying. That what David experienced that day when Uzzah died, what Henry Nowen experienced when he said there was spiritual death, what I have seen in my own life. I wonder if we could say, while I'm part of all these amazing things, something in me is dying. And maybe it's the kind of thing where you say, well, I've been coming to desperation for four years now. But do I know Jesus more this year than I did last year? Do you? Do you go from here and live in contact with him or is this sort of just a shot in the arm for a couple more months? I think God wants more for us. God in his love wants more for us. He made us for contact with him. You know what the Levites did? They tried it again. They didn't say, okay, forget it. We're never going to bring the presence of God. We're never going to. No, they didn't give up. They decided that they were going to do this right. And so David says two things to the Levites. They do two things differently the second time around that they didn't do the first time. And the first thing they did was they consecrated themselves. So if you say, well, I want, how do I become this? Be consecrated. That this is part of how we get ourselves ready. David said to the Levites, he said, okay, listen, guys, in 1 Chronicles 15, 12, he said to them, you are the heads of the Levitical families. You and your fellow Levites are to consecrate yourselves and bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for it. In other words, there's no one else but you. Set yourself apart and get ready to do this. Now, I think consecration or sanctification, setting yourself apart, I think all of that stuff, when you hear that, it has negative connotations for you. Chances are. Because every time we talk about being consecrated, or if you use a word like that, you know, in desperation we talk about having a consecrated heart. Every time you hear phrases like that, you tend to think right away of all the things this now means you cannot do. 
Oh, well, if I'm going to have a consecrated heart, I guess I can't watch movies. I guess I can't listen. I guess I can't do that. I guess I can't hang out. I guess I've got to sit in my room all day long. No computer, no cell phone, no Twitter. But you know, when the Bible talks about consecration and being set apart, it's closer to the idea of being engaged, being betrothed. Anybody in this room ever been engaged? A couple of you? Any, any of you about to be? No, I'm just kidding. You guys, some of you are like, well, I don't know, maybe, are we? No? Okay. It's a little young for that, but... Nobody in their right mind would, would propose to a girl and say, I'd like, would you be my wife? And she says yes. And nobody in their right mind would then the next day say, now, uh, Jenny, I just want you to know that I don't think you should Facebook any of your guy friends anymore. Like, oh, really? If she says that, that's a sign. Ask for the ring back and run. <laughs> nobody... Who, who just got engaged says, ah, you know, bummer. All the old girlfriends I can't talk to anymore. Gosh, it's just, ah, I'm engaged. Yeah, I mean, I'm excited. No, I'm excited. I really, no, I'm excited. I'm just, I mean, it's just a lot of people I can't talk to anymore. I mean, I mean a, lot of, a lot of guys I can't hang out with. You know, it's like, I mean, what? Right? That's just ludicrous. When you get engaged, it's not about the thousand no's you have to say. It's about the one yes you got to say. When you say yes to Jesus, our po- the point is not all the things you got to say no to, but the one all-consuming, beautiful yes we've just said to this person, Jesus. That being consecrated is not essentially about all the things we're separated from, but it's about the one that we are separated to. That we're no longer asking questions like, well, is this wrong? Is that wrong? Should I do that? Should I not do that? What's right and what's wrong? I mean, who really is to say? Isn't this kind of a matter of the heart? We're no longer asking questions like that. And we're saying, you know, I I don't even know. But for love, I choose Jesus. For love, I choose. It's it's probably not wrong to go see that movie. But but for love, I'm going to stay home tonight and read my Bible. For love of Jesus, I'm doing this. That yes, you could make engagement about all the things you have to say no to, but you're missing the point. Because it's about love. And you could make a consecrated heart about all the things you cannot do, but you'd be missing the point. Because consecration, just like engagement, is not about all the things you have to say no to. It's about the love that drove you to say yes to one. The second thing the priests did was they began to offer sacrifices. And the language is interesting. It says after six steps, they sacrificed some bulls and some goats. And some even believe that every six steps they sacrificed, you know. And this is kind of an interesting thing. I mean, it's really bizarre when you think about it. Like, we're used to talking this in church language, but it is kind of bizarre. That, you know, six steps. Okay, stop. We got the bulls. Yep, got the goats. Okay, you know, you know, blood everywhere. This whole road becomes this bloody trail from Obed-Edom's house all the way to Jerusalem becomes this bloody trail of sacrifice. And it's clear to us that the sacrifice that paves the way for us to live in contact with God is Jesus' blood. But Romans 12.1 says it this way. 
talks about our living sacrifice, talks about the things that we do, not to earn God's favor, not to impress God, not to earn our way to Him, but it says it this way, it says, I beseech you brothers in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. If we're going to become carriers of the presence, we're saying, okay, I'm going to be consecrated. I'm going to be a living sacrifice. I'm going to wake up every morning and say, God, today you have me. I'm yours. I'm yours today. I don't know if I'll feel you today. I don't know if I'll have the goosebumps today. I don't know if I'll have, but God, I'm yours today. I'm yours today. I think there's something in us that keeps looking for shortcuts keeps looking for an easier isn't there an easier way than this i love the message translation of matthew 7 matthew 7 verse 13 says don't look for shortcuts to god the market is flooded with surefire easygoing formulas for a successful life that can be practiced in your spare time but don't fall for that stuff even though crowds of people do the way to life to god is vigorous and requires total attention. It seems like we keep looking for shortcuts to God and God keeps inviting us on this long, bloody walk of daily sacrifice. So God, I just want to, this is too hard. I'm used to stuff happening quickly in my life and I'm used to being able to get what I want quickly. And God's saying, look, either if you're in for this, if you sign up for this, this is not a one moment, one week, one night. This, And I love how David talks about this. This is the kind of thing that into your 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, you're living in contact with Jesus. We're not looking for the shortcut that says, God, let me, let me feel this now. Let me hear you now. Let me, let me just have this now. And God's saying, no, you don't get it. I'm not here for one time. I'm here for a walk. And a walk that requires bloodshed. Yours. The daily as you say, God, here's my ambition and here's my struggle and here's my... And God says, well, thank you. Yeah, keep bringing that all to me because as we wrestle through this, you become a daily sacrifice. Could you imagine desperation? What would happen... If we became carriers. If we decided that we're not going to believe someone else is the God expert. We got to live secondhand. We got to just find it. Could you imagine what would happen if we decided to be the kind of people that live in contact with God? Let's say, for the love of God, for the joy that he gives, for the life that I know... I'm setting myself apart to him. I'm offering my life to him. I'm embracing this. Sometimes people come to church or come to a youth group or come to a conference. Oh man, I really, I hope the band really brings it tonight. I hope, I hope Leland really brings it. No, David's preaching. I hope David really brings it tonight. Why don't you bring it? I mean, really. What if, 
What if you walked into a church service or you walked into your youth group or you walked into a place and you said, you know, I don't know if the worship's going to be good. I don't know if the band's practiced enough. I don't know if the sermon's going to be that great. But it doesn't matter what they do because I'm walking in and I'm a carrier of the presence of the living God. And I know God's here because I'm here. What if we live like that? What would happen to your schools if you really believed that the answer was not getting them to come to some service, but getting you to go to them with Christ? What, if, what would happen to your workplaces, to the places where you hang out? What would happen if you stopped believing that the answer, the thing they needed was, oh, if I could just get the courage up to get them to come here. What if you believed I am a carrier and I've been living in contact with God, so when I go here, God goes here with me. And when I step into this place, God steps into that place with me. Because what God is waiting for is not a new cart that's shinier, works more efficiently, can mass broadcast a gospel message that somehow lights up the world that way. But what God is waiting for is a generation that says, I'm living in contact with Jesus. Where I go, he goes. He's the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. I'm a carrier. Where I go, God goes. There's a way of thinking about this that could be helpful for you. And that is to, to, to think of the metaphor of a hiking trail. And we live in Colorado. We've got a lot of beautiful hiking trails. I've been on about three of them. And enjoyed all three of those. I'll do it again sometime. But there's a couple of different approaches to this. You know, sometimes you, you, you could stand at the edge of a hiking trail and look at this trail map and just stand there. Say, oh my gosh, that is a beautiful trail map. I mean, really, like it's wood and they've carved it and they painted white in it, you know. And then you start to look at the map and this is amazing. Like, you know, the loop goes this way and if you, if you hang a left, it goes nine miles. If you, if you keep going, it's only three. Let's make sure to not take the left and, you know. And you're staring at this map and it's going, and you stand there long enough, people are coming off the trail and you're like, man, how was it? It's like, oh dude, beautiful. I mean, there's this stream and dips down into this valley and then you got this view up on top of the, you know, you're like, wow, I knew it. I knew that was beautiful. And you're still standing there, you know. And then you stand there long enough that new hikers are coming up, you know, new hikers are coming up and you're, and they're like, oh, and you say to them, oh man, are you about to take this, this, this hike? Like, oh yeah, have you been? Well, no, but I've heard it's amazing, dude. You are in for a great experience. Really, how, how come you haven't been? I don't know. But the map's really cool. <laughs> you know, like, wow, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and I wonder if that's why our conversations about Jesus are so hollow sometimes. When we talk to... Our friends, we want to talk to them about Jesus, but, but it's, it's so hollow because all we can tell them about is the trail map. We've never been on the trail. So what is it like living with Jesus and what is it like? Um, well, I, I heard that it, and I, it seems like it would be, you've never been on it. 
What would happen to our evangelism, to our conversations about Christ? What would happen to that if we were talking from, as people who had actually been on the journey of knowing God for ourselves? What, what? See, then the other error with hiking is to say, well, forget the trail map. I'm just going to figure this out. I'm kind of a nature guy. I'll just wander off into the woods. I don't need a map. I don't even need the trail. I'll just kind of do my own thing. And this is kind of like the people who say, I don't need church. I don't need leaders. I don't need teachers. I don't need any help. I'll just kind of figure this out with candles and a meditative position. (laughs) Whatever that is. You know what happens to hikers who ignore trail maps and trails? They typically end up getting lost in the forest. There's loads of people who say, well, I forget this, I don't need church, I don't need my... I'll just wander off, I'll just kind of seek out... And they end up believing all kinds of strange and funky heresies and things. That you're like, well, why do you believe that? I don't know, I'm just kind of... Listen, what I'm saying to you, desperation, is not that you take this journey with God by yourself... I'm saying that you do this for yourself. There's loads of friends, there's loads of leaders who want to make the map come alive to you by actually taking your hand and leading you along the trail. Because the map is good, but the trail is better. Job was a man in the Bible who experienced incredible tragedy had occasion after occasion for disillusionment with God but he chose instead to say God I'm going to wrestle with you God I'm going to try to engage you God I'm going to unload even if it looks like me unloading my frustration with you to you God finally speaks to Job toward the end of the book of Job and starts to ask him a bunch of questions of his own there's this phrase that Job says that is amazing God is done speaking. Job answers God. Job 42 verse 5. He says, look, I admit. I once lived by rumors of you. But now I have it all firsthand with my own eyes and ears. Some of you are sitting here today and and you've been through some what the heck moments. You've been through some derailments. And what I want to encourage you today is rather than let those things say, well, it must not be true, I'm walking. I would love for you to say today, what if I come and make contact with God for myself? What if I tell him how I'm feeling? What if I say to him what I think? Others of you are saying, well, I I, I just, you know, uh, I, I don't even know where to start. You know, I'm kind of a new Christian, new, this whole whole thing is new. That's where we have friends to walk with us along the path. You can do what Christians have done for thousands of years and open up the Psalms and pray them word for word as if they were your prayers. And have that be a trail, path for you. But probably most of us are in this last place where we would say, you know what, I I have, I'm a church kid, I kind of, you know, I've been around this, been at this before but it's true i'm not sure if i really know god for myself i'm not suggesting you reject everything you've heard i'm just challenging you to make contact with god to live in contact with him to learn to become a carrier stand
As we close this morning, I want us to sing this song, but before we do, just, if you would, just kind of with, with hearts open and, and hands kind of out, outstretched like this as a way of saying, God, I, yeah, I, I am open. I want to hear you. I want to... And let the Lord kind of uh, kind of mess with your heart and speak. people who live in contact with you. Embrace this calling to be priests. Embrace this calling to know you for ourselves. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus, the one you've sent. God, this thing is not just about getting a passport to heaven and then marking time until we get there God this thing is about knowing you here and now I pray that you help us to believe that that each one of us that not one of us is left out of this that not one of us has to sit on the outside of this that every one of us can come near 